Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and on Sundays for one service at 10. Also, if you're looking for a place to celebrate Christmas, we welcome you to come on December 24th to one of our Christmas Eve services at 1, 3, or 5 p.m. You can find more details about the day at waterstonechurch.org. We look forward to connecting with you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the undying life of God. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Amen. Two quick things before we start today. One, the high point of our worship is going to be after the sermon when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. We come to the table of grace. So if you did not uh, pick up uh, the elements for communion on your way in, just when we get to that point uh, of communion, we'll pause for a moment, raise your hand, the ushers will be ready if you need communion elements. In fact, maybe we should ask now, does anyone need communion elements? Raise your hand. Oh, there's a few, Glenn. There's a few up here, so we'll be ready when that time comes. We want everyone, and online, uh, get your graham crackers and uh, chocolate milk ready there. <laughs> Second thing, we, um, we have a very important staff announcement that we need to make after the uh, service today. So we want to encourage you to stay in the room. This is a significant announcement, and uh, we want everyone to, uh, to, to partake in it. So uh, if you'd stay through the end of the service, we'll, we'll, that'll be the last thing we do today. Hmm. Second Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says that all scripture is God breathed, thus profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Two minutes and 43 seconds. We're going to read scripture and it's going to be two minutes and 43 seconds and we're going to be equipped. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, two minutes, 43 seconds, stay with it, and we'll be equipped. A reading, Matthew chapter one, beginning at verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Selman, Selman the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Rahab, sorry, jumped a verse. <laughs> 
Okay, two minutes, 47 seconds. <laughs> Ruth, now, Rahab, <laughs> Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The word of the Lord. <laughs> no, no. We are this Advent, year of our Lord, 2022, Merry Christmas. We are preaching through the birth stories of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, we started at the very end, and we preached through this interesting story about a toddler king who threatens all global kings, this king who brings new peace and also new war, and that's Jesus. This week, we're going to go to the very first birth narrative, which is a genealogy. And we're going to ask the question, why a genealogy? And Matthew has some very specific purposes in mind with this genealogy. Mainly, we're going to be reminded that this king who's come, this baby king, is the one who's running history. So we're going to understand that Jesus is the author, the writer of history. But also, we're going to come by looking at some surprising inclusions of stories that Matthew alludes to is we're also going to learn the heart behind the history. So we're going to learn history this morning and the heart behind it. So how many of you have ever done your family genealogy? Raise your hand. A oh, good number of you. Yeah. If you have, you've probably learned already that uh, genealogy is a massive business. $2.3 billion industry. Massive websites and places, Ellis Island, Utah, Europe, all over the world where you can go and uh, study uh, your family genealogy. There's um, a big business, too, with, uh, in Utah, the Mormons. I have a, there's a Smithsonian article a few years back about a mountain in Utah where the Mormons are trying to gather the living ancestry of every person in the world deposit them into the mountain, and then the Mormons can be baptized by proxy for their own relatives and save the Mormon world. That's genealogy with purpose right there. You have probably know, too, that genealogy is a very uh, big entertainment 
business. Um, there's a show on PBS called Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates where famous people uh, do genealogy research on their uh, family tree and they usually have one of two kinds of surprises. One is they discover that they have some relatives they didn't know they had or two, some of the relatives that they didn't know about had some really shady past. There's also good surprises. Uh, There's an article a few years back in the Wall Street Journal where they've studied the genealogy of the original passengers of the Mayflower that now number 35 million people, most of them still in the United States, which means that in a gathering of this size, several hundred people, there's probably original descendants in the Mayflower sitting in this room. Would you raise your hand, please, and identify yourself? There's one. Barb over there. Oh, one in the back. Glenn Kendall. Oh, one here. What's your name? Bill. Bill. <laughs> I've met you. Bill and uh, Jay. Jameson. Anyone else? Someone, I, there's a hand over there. Okay. Welcome Mayflower descendants. Let's welcome them. All right. <laughs> now, the question is, does being a Mayflower descendant uh, have any impact on your life? How do you feel about it? Has it changed your life? In our world, not so much. Genealogy in our culture in particular is more of our curiosity. But when Matthew is writing this genealogy about Jesus Christ, it is much more than a curiosity. It is pedigree, and pedigree in the ancient world was access and privilege, and in some cases, power. You could not buy land in ancient Israel during Matthew's time, even though they were under Roman occupation, you could not buy land without being able to produce a family tree and prove your ancestry. What Matthew has in mind here is some of that thinking of the ancient world to show Jesus' pedigree as well as lay out the reasons why we, he, we believe that this is a king who has come among us. So let's look at verse 1. We're, we're going to look at three ways that Matthew kind of does this. One with some massive theological statements, some with some artistry, and then... <laughs> When we get there, it's just amazing. I have such more huge respect for Matthew's writing. He's the first one to articulate the virgin birth. Imagine if you had to articulate the virgin birth, how you would do it. It's masterful. Look at verse 1, though. Here's a massive theological statement. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, literally, what, the way Matthew writes it, it's interesting in the Greek. It's an unusual expression. He, it literally reads, this is the book, biblos, of the genios, the genesis. This is the book of the genesis, Jesus the Messiah. In other words, according to Matthew, what's most important, listen, is not the birth of the world. What's most important is the birth of the king of the world. So we're at the very beginnings here of what matters. Jesus is the genesis. The Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. What Matthew, out of the gate, wants us to know is that Jesus has the legal claim on the throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God appeared to David, the great king of Israel, and he made a promise uh, 700 years prior that, actually 1,000 years, David was 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years prior, that from David's physical descendants would come a king who would rule through all eternity, who would be the bridge to get us from wherever we are here 
to wherever there is in all eternity. It would be a Davidic descendant, son of David. Jesus is that king. So Matthew wants us to know that Jesus has legal claim to the throne of Israel. Second, he wants us to know the pedigree, that he's a son of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. So in order for this king of son of David, he first had to be a uh, son of Abraham. Now, you remember in Genesis 12 when God and Abraham had a conversation and God told Abraham, look up to the stars. That will be the number of your descendants. And through your descendants, the nation of Israel, all nations of the world will be blessed. So you see what Matthew's doing here out of the gate. He's saying, Israel, Messiah's here, king, son of David, world, your hope is here. Jesus, son of Abraham. Power and hope in Jesus. How's that for a massive theological start of a genealogy? Unique. Jesus is the promise of the ages. The second thing that we want to point out from this genealogy of Matthew's doing, huge respect for this, is he's becoming poetic. He's using numbers, which were very important in genealogies in the ancient world, to, uh, to say something. The, the, the methodology is the message here about King Jesus. Re- really two things. Did you notice in, in verse 17 that um, there's three sections of 14 generations? And so we know that in each section there was more than 14 generations. There were more than 14 kings of Judah, more than 14 generations from Abraham to David. What Matthew is doing is some artistic license here and saying, look, I'm going to give the genealogy of Jesus with a purpose, and that purpose is to say that I'm in control of history. History, because I'm running it, has a point, a purpose, uh, a, a flow. It, it's, it's, um, it makes sense. It's logical. I want you to know that I'm in control of history and each generation and that I'm at work. And so you have this generation three by 14. The other thing that's, well, two other interesting things are interesting. One, in the ancient world, numerology or gematria was very important. And what you did in the ancient world was you took the consonants of your name in Hebrew and they had numeric value by where they sat in the Hebrew alphabet. So the word David, Daleth is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Vav is the sixth letter, uh, and Daleth, the name David, Daleth, Vav, Daleth, you add those numbers up and it's 14. Guess whose name is in the 14th place at the end of the first one? It's David, son of David. Matthew's just pressing this down harder and harder, that Jesus is the son of David. And three uh, movements through all of history, about a 2,000-year period. Um, What's interesting is if you add those three 14 generations, it's 42. The next seven would be the perfect number in Israel, the seventh seven. Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the seventh seven. He completes the generations. In the Jewish law, the seventh seven was the year of Jubilee. It was the perfect rest, the final rest. Jesus is the one who completes history. 
Jesus is the seventh seven. Jesus is the jubilee. Jesus is the rest that the world searches for. Searches for. He completes the genealogy. Do you see the artistry that Matthew has in play to say that not only is Jesus the promise of the ages, he's the end of the ages, the goal, the finality. It's Jesus. Everything comes from Jesus and moves towards Jesus. And then we have to look for a moment at verse 16 because this is how Matthew articulates the virgin birth. I, I won't read it again. Just uh, the, the surprise there, right, is that Joseph, you would expect to say, if this wasn't the son of God, that Joseph was the father of Jesus. But instead, Matthew says, wait a minute, left turn here. Joseph is the husband of Mary. Why? Because the father of Jesus is the father. This is the son of of God. You understand, right, that what Christmas means, should you choose to believe it, is that Jesus Christ came into the world through a door marked no entrance, a virgin birth, and he left this world through a door that said no exit. He conquered death. There's no one like him. Thus, you see what Matthew is doing is saying that the history of the world is purposely driven by God to display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the genealogy. So if this is true, if that's the big idea of what Matthew's doing here, purposely telling us that he moves history to display the beauty and glory of his son, then what are we to take from it? What are the implications? There's at least two. The first one is that God is in control of history. God is writing history. 2,000 years are summarized in this genealogy, all of it pointing to Jesus. We believe that God is still in control of history, pointing 2,000 years now plus history and still going to the second coming for which we wait when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, let's grab onto this a little bit, can we? These last three years have been really hard. I mean, not only in our lifetime, but centuries of hardness kind of packed into the last three years. But what this genealogy tells us, two minutes and 47 seconds, is that God is engaged, that a plan is in place, and that his power is plenty. He's ruling the world. History is going exactly where he wants it. The rule of God has never been in trouble. God rules. Christmas is a challenge to your view of history. There's the Greek view of history that says that the world and its history is just an endless cycle, spiraling, 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 until the sun burns out. Going nowhere. When you're done, you're done. Food for worms. There's other view of history that's more current, more pertinent to our culture, called nihilism. Most any movie you watch has elements of nihilism 
in our culture right now. Nihilism is the sense that what history is is a black blob on a white piece of paper. It's a Rorschach test, right? Make of it what you want. As long as you get happy, the rest is kind of absurd, you know? What does it matter? Why even think about it? Just be happy. The Christian view of Christmas, the Christian view of history, is that it's a, it's a genealogy. It's a line. It comes through Jesus, and it's going to Jesus again, and it's going somewhere. And it ends with the goal of history, Jesus Christ, and all the nations before him. It ends with the rule of Jesus. Jesus, when he came, first words out of your mouth, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And Christians repent and believe day after day after day, aligning ourselves again and again with the rule of Christ. We believe that history has a purpose, and it's going somewhere. God is in control of history, appearances to the contrary. That's what Christmas means. We also means that God is writing history, <laughs> but the way he's doing it, with crooked sticks, man. Abraham. Abraham, the great model of faith. Abraham and Sarah, yeah, they had a lot of faith. But Abraham, he's a compulsive liar. He lied so much he makes Pinocchio look like a pug. <laughs> There's Jacob. Jacob was so deceitful he would make card sharks in Vegas blush. What should we say about David, man, after God's own heart? He killed a man. Not in battle. He killed many in battle. He, he murdered a man. More on that in a minute. What should we say about Manasseh? who sacrificed his oldest son in a fire to the god Baal. He's in the list. What should we say about that middle 14, those kings of Judah, seven of which were cowards, no one's characterless, bad character, and uh, idolaters? What should we say about the third 14? Well, nothing, because we don't know anything about them. Absolutely nothing, which makes me think that's probably the one we can most connect to because odds are that three or four generations from now, no one's going to remember you either. Which really challenges your view of history and what you're doing here. According to this genealogy, God's using even people who are unremarkable and already forgotten to write history. According to a Christian view of history, God's kingdom is advancing through the daily momentary efforts of people like you and me. What this genealogy says is you're history writers. You're writing all the time. And the kingdom of God is the history of the world coming through people, crooked sticks like you and me. I want to remind you this morning, take nothing else, take this. You are always writing the kingdom of God. Reminded me of a, one of my favorite stories from Frank McCourt. Uh, he wrote a book about teaching in Brooklyn at a community college called Teacher Man. He wants to sign his class to write about the saddest night of their life. Now there's an interesting assignment. 
one woman named Phyllis. Phyllis wrote an account of how her family gathered the night Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, how they shuttled between the living room television and the bedroom where her father lay dying, back and forth. Concerned with her father, not wanting to miss the moon landing, Phyllis said she was with her father and her mother. When her mother called to come see Armstrong set foot on the moon, she ran to the living room, everyone cheering and hugging till she felt this urgency, the old urgency, and ran back to the bedroom to find her father dead. She didn't scream. She didn't cry. Her problem was how to return to the happy people in the living room and tell them that dad was gone. She cried now standing in front of the classroom. She could have stepped back to her seat in the front row. I hoped that she would because I didn't know what to do. I went to her. I put my left arm around her, but that wasn't enough. She embraced me with both arms and sobbed into my shoulder. Faces around the room were wet with tears till someone called out, right on Phyllis. And one or two people clapped and then the whole class clapped and cheered, and Phyllis turned to smile at them with her wet face. And when I led her to her seat, she turned, and she touched my cheek. And I thought, this isn't earth-shaking, this touch on the cheek, but I'll never forget it. Phyllis, her dead father, Armstrong on the moon. Then McCord writes, listen. Are you listening? Every day of your life, you are writing. You are writing the history of the kingdom of God. Matthew's purpose in the genealogy is to say that God is in control of history and he's using crooked sticks, people like you and me, to write it. But he also wants us to know that there's a heart behind this history a great heart. That's why there's some surprises in the genealogy. First of all, the big surprise is that there's women in this genealogy. In the ancient world, the only reason you would ever include a woman in a genealogy in a patriarchal culture is if the woman really made the family look a whole lot better. So what you would expect Matthew to do with Jesus' genealogy is include the mothers of Israel, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Rachel, mm -mm. they are not in this genealogy. So with me, are you with me? He includes women, gender outsiders. Secondly, the women he chooses to include, I think we have this on the screen, four of the five of them were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Those were hated enemies of Israel, really nasty people. And then... Ruth was a Moabite, another enemy of Israel. Bathsheba, there's, uh, you know, actually theologians write papers on these things, if you can believe it. There's a lot of discussion as to whether Bathsheba was a Jew. In my view, it really doesn't matter all that much because she married Uriah, who was a Hittite. So if you married someone outside the Jewish faith, you were already an outsider. So four of the five are outsiders. Are you getting this? Matthew wants us to hear that he's including women and that he's including four Gentiles. What's he doing? Well, he's previewing the ministry of Jesus Christ, whose every moment was drawn to outsiders, who sought 
to bring the races together, who sought to bring those in the bottom rung up, who sought to bring the outsider on the inside. It's the ministry of Jesus. But then there's one more thing. So it's, it's gender outsiders, it's Gentile outsiders, but here's where you really have to like smile at Matthew's audacity. Because what he wants to do is the exact opposite of probably what you and I would want to do in our genealogy. We want to leave out all the bad parts. <laughs> We'd want to leave out the embarrassing episodes. Matthew, it seems, is determined to pick the four most embarrassing episodes in the nation of Israel. First one, Tamar. You might remember the story of Tamar. Paul Joslin, our teaching pastor, preached one of the best messages I've ever heard at Waterstone from Genesis 38 last winter. You can find it on our website when we preach the stories of Genesis on Judah and Tamar. Judah was a bad dude and a neglectful member of his family. He should have been a father. He should have taken care of the Levirate law because Tamar's, her husband had died and Jewish law, Mosaic law, allowed that someone else would step in from the family and give her heirs so that she could survive. And Judah refused to do it. So Tamar dressed up like a prostitute because evidently Judah visited prostitutes. And out of this union came an heir, uh, you know, someone in Jesus' family line. Matthew is so concerned that we absorb what he's doing here that he actually lists both sons, the twins that were born from Tamar. Both of them are named. Do you understand that in the Mosaic law, what happened here, a daughter-in-law sleeping with her father-in-law, incest. Matthew says, I want you all to know that the family of Jesus has an incident of incest in it. Ponder that. Second woman is Rahab, a prostitute. Enough said. Third woman is Ruth, an upstanding woman full of character. She's a widow, and she's after a kinsman redeemer, someone from her husband's line to redeem the the family, start the line up again. She uh, gets into, uh, there's no other way to say this. She's very courageous and very bold, but a very compromising position on the threshing floor where she uncovers Boaz's feet. That meant only one thing in the Israel culture. (laughs) Bold move. Matthew says, yep, I want that in. Fourth woman. Oh my, this is interesting. We know her as Bathsheba. You can read about her in 2 Samuel. Do you understand the way that Matthew lists her as the wife of Uriah, what he's doing? The story is this, David saw her bathing, lusted after her, but the great sin of David is that he was corrupted by power. Sends for her, forces her into adultery, and there's a child that's conceived. David tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home, or your eye is too honorable to go home and sleep with his wife while his men are in the foxhole. So long story short, he puts Uriah right in a place as the army withdraw, and hit through his word, he kills Uriah. You need to understand that Uriah was one of David's mighty men, 30 of them, who were the great warriors in Israel and friends of David. David takes a wife's friend and kills the husband who was his friend. And Matthew 
does not give us the name Bathsheba to slight Bathsheba. He gives us the name wife of Uriah to slam David. Why? Because he wants us to know that this man's sin who far out, can we say outshines all the other sins, like even the women, this man too, this man who's a murderer has a place in Jesus' family. Do you get it? Do you understand how Matthew is saying, here's the heart behind history. In a word, grace. The heart behind history beats grace. Jesus' family are those who are misunderstood, murderers, mis, uh, 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 stigmatized, abused, liars, cheaters. What other name you can think for me or for you? Jesus' family is for sinners. It's grace that makes the world go. It's grace. Jesus' view of his table, which we'll come to in a moment, is that the prostitute and the king sit down together and they are equal. It's no longer about gender and it's no longer about ethnicity and it's no longer about morality. It's about grace. And all are welcome at the table of Jesus. The minute that anyone, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the minute that you look to Jesus, he's running to you to embrace you with forgiveness and show you a seat at his table. It's grace. It's grace. That's the heart behind history. That's what Matthew wants us to see from the get-go is that Christmas means grace. So in a moment, I want to have a little prayer time and have our hearts prepare to come to the table. Before that, just a practical application for a moment. If grace is the heart behind history, if the King Jesus' heart is grace, you know, the obvious question is, how's your heart doing with grace? Is grace your instinct? Is grace your default? Let me meddle a little bit with you. When people experience you, do they experience grace? Uh, I know some of the couples are like, Let me, let me make it more down the abstract ladder even. Paul, he talks a lot about grace in his letters. And so he gets to real practical places. He says in Colossians 4, when you have conversations with outsiders, in other words, your, your coworkers, your friends, and how you write on Facebook, ooh. He says, let your conversations be salty, like attractive, and full of Is your conversation full of grace, undeserved favor? Other places, Paul says, this grace thing is about being willing to overlook a fault in someone. Now, you know, that's balanced and tempered. We, we don't give up truth. 
We also understand that sometimes loving people is allowing them to experience consequences. Sometimes they need to really experience what they're doing. But there are those other in the in-between places so often in our lives that annoy us or frustrate us and we feel we have to say something and I'm asking you if you really need to. Can love overlook a fault? Can you give undeserved favor by not saying everything you think? When people experience you, do they experience the heart behind history, which is grace. Now, as we prepare to come to the table, whatever posture you'd like to take for a couple minutes of prayer, you can close your eyes, keep them open. Can we pray together as we prepare to come to the table? It's us together before our King Jesus, and we're talking now to Jesus in his presence. Maybe you're here this morning, and you feel like Tamar, desperate about your future. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? Perhaps some of you are here like Rahab, enslaved by your past. Perhaps some of you are here like Ruth, this morning, always an outsider, even at church, you feel outside, lonely. Perhaps some here are like the wife of Uriah. You've been abused, and you think to yourself all the time, if these people only knew what's happened to me, they'd want nothing to do with me. There are dark places and lonely worlds, and desperate yearnings, and shameful pasts, aren't there? And it hurts even now to stir it up. But the presence of Jesus Christ is God with us. And he cries over us, holy you belong to me. How holy? Holy enough to be born in you by his Holy Spirit. How holy? Holy enough to call you family. Hebrews 2, he is not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers. So, welcome Grandma Tamar and Grandma Rahab, and Grandma Ruth, and Grandma Bathsheba. What's this world coming to? It's upside down, it's grace, it's a baby, the Messiah, the King of the world, the Son of God, who wants you to be born again into his family, a child of God. This morning, if you have a place like that that Matthew points out, a place of loneliness, a place of rejection, a place of shame, then quietly pray to the Lord just before we come to his table of grace. It's a table for sinners. Just pray, Jesus, 
cry holy over me. Jesus, cry holy over me. Tell me again that you want me. I guess what I'm saying, Waterstone, as we come to the table, is to believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. We're going to put it on the screens and read it together aloud. Would you join me aloud? Here's what we believe. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen?